then we'll get real systemic change. But I think, yeah, we're still just tip of the iceberg. It's still quite surface. But it's good to even, you know, be talking and pushing these things, I think. Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the third in a short series centred on the ideas of inflation and conflation, linking with the Turing exhibition also titled Conflated. In ways both metaphorical and material, the show looks at ideas of inflation and deflation through creative, environmental and political ways. And one of the artists in the show is Eugenia Lim. Eugenia has an incredible practice, spanning video, performance and installation. She's an Australian artist of Chinese-Singaporean descent, and her work partly explores this by subverting cultural stereotypes in ways both intelligent and very witty. In past works, she's taken on invented personas, inhabiting them across multiple videos, performances and sites. Eugenia is also one of the previous co-directors of the experimental art organisation AFIDS, and we talk about one of AFIDS' latest performance works, Easy Riders, which looks at the gig economy and capitalism, and we discuss how worker exploitation is an ongoing concern in Eugenia's work. In addition to her really thought-provoking practice, Eugenia has also co-directed the inaugural Channels Festival, and she was the founding editor of the journal Assemble Papers. In our conversation, she talks through her latest work with Kyneton Locals, an area in regional Victoria, and how her work speaks to collective acts and what this means in a divisive political time like the one we're living. And before we get started, a kind thank you to our sponsor for this series, Nets Victoria, who are nationally touring Conflated, assisted by the Australian Government's Vision of Australia program and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. Right now we're sitting in your studio in Collingwood in Melbourne and it's a beautiful sunny day and you have this fantastic studio with lots of books, lots of tubs, lots of diagrams on the wall. How often are you in here working? I'd say I'm in here at the studio probably three days a week. I live not too far away and I think the pandemic kind of made me change up my working routine a lot so I tend to move around between home and here and I'm also at uni as well but I try and get in here as much as I can because it's sort of my retreat like sanctuary thinking space. (laughs) Sanctuary from life, from home, from all the things I think um, yeah it's my space with my my books and I can sort of sprawl out if I want to and I'm also in this amazing community of other artists and art organizations that I think the energy sort of does, you can sort of feel it coming in here. So I think, yeah, it's good to kind of separate from the washing up and Mm -hmm. the clothes folding and the domestic minutiae. I think it's nice to have that boundary sometimes. Yeah, especially when it got complicated in the last couple of years. Yeah. For Conflated, you're showing a video work, Shelters for Kyneton, Triadic Transfer, And the only still I've seen of it is I think it's of yourself and two other people and you're standing in a circle and you're wearing these gold Mylar costumes. What happens in that video work? Uh, The work was made on Tungarung Country in Kyneton and it was commissioned originally for the um, Kyneton Triennial, which took place 
February this year, 2022, and the the two other people in the work are my invited collaborators in the project. So one is Jennifer Anderson, who's a councillor. She's actually the mayor of the Macedon Ranges, so the area. She's kind of like the mayor of Kyneton. Mm-hmm. I went straight to the top. <laughs> and uh, the other participant or collaborator is Steve Boulter, who's a council worker who's been a kind of running that site where we filmed the work, which is the Kyneton Transfer Station or the Kyneton Tip He's been working there for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the work is a sort of choreographic work, a collaboration where we inhabit this gold costume and we sort of take on these gestures or motions that are much related to Steve's everyday working life there. Uh, he manages, I guess, waste and transfer. You know, people drop off old white goods. They might come and collect uh, mulch for their gardens and that's Steve's domain. He kind of keeps this whole site going. Mm-hmm. So the work was this invitation to kind of do a dance together, myself as someone who's not from Kyneton but very interested in ideas of ecology and flows and cycles of life, secular economy. So I kind of brought that interest and that idea to my two collaborators Mm. and they are both already working in that way but kind of at opposite ends of, you know, the town social hierarchy or or planning. Mm. So it was really interesting to come together in that time and sort of get to know each other, all feel a little bit weird and uncomfortable and sort of going outside our comfort zone, but doing that together. Mm-hmm. So in the video you see this strange day's work unfold where we're maintaining the site, but ultimately at the end we become this kind of singular creature or organism joined by this gold mylar costume. In a lot of your previous works, you've often been a persona. And I think one of the most known works is when you play the persona of Mao and you wear that brilliant gold suit. Are you yourself in this video or is it you as a persona? In my previous works, I guess I would say I would caution to say that I'm not playing Mao because <laughs> I don't really want to be a, a kind of um, yeah. a dictator figure. But I guess embodying, I guess, different personas in relation to this ambassador character. That ambassador figure morphed and changed and sometimes was a kind of factory boss or, you know, quite authoritative figure in works like The People's Currency mm-hmm. or in the project The Australian Ugliness, that that figure of the ambassador was sometimes a student, sometimes a cleaner, mm-hmm. sometimes a client of architecture. So it sort of that persona enabled me to explore, I guess, different facets of, you know, the Australian identity and also, I guess, what it means to be Asian on screen as well. That was often something that I was really interested in with that persona. But with this work, Shelters for Kyneton, I think that, yeah, I don't think there is that sort of adoption of a persona or a character as such. I think, yeah, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if it's biographical but I'm definitely not hiding I think that it's me um and and the fact that I guess the three of us are wearing the same costume it was quite important that we could be seen as who we are so people would recognize Jennifer the mayor and people would definitely recognize Steve the tip worker because they see him on a daily or weekly basis the work was very much made with Kyneton and the sort of 
local community in mind. So it was important that, yeah, there weren't sort of masks or, yeah, the adoption of a kind of persona as such, if that makes sense. Like we're kind of, yeah, we can be identified as who we are, but we're joined in this sort of uniform of work or something, um, which is the gold suit. Mm -hmm. What are you trying to draw out in that joining together at the end then? I think the work was such a product of the pandemic. It's really interesting. I I didn't necessarily think that I would make a work in relation to the lockdown or the pandemic, but of course, you know, you're such, you know, the work that you make or how you're feeling on a kind of emotional, psychological level of course it impacts, you know, how you're seeing the world and the kind of way that you're making work. And I think ultimately that project was about this idea of connection and collaboration. And I'd, I'd, I'd already sort of envisaged this idea of collaboration with, you know, with the mayor and with Steve uh, before the pandemic, but as the lockdowns hit in Melbourne, it sort of became even more critical that the work was able to be about this coming together and sharing of space and some kind of intimacy even if we couldn't touch. So the costume, which is this sort of, they're three individual kind of boiler suits, but uh, they're able to be joined by a kind of modular arm strip, which is about, I think, 1.5 metres long. So it was very COVID safe. Everything was done, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to the letter. But at the same time, it was incredibly hard to make the work because there was this ring of steel around Nam, around Melbourne. So the times when I wanted to go out and film out in Kyneton when they were able to move and there was more mobility there, I actually couldn't. So it's this interesting thing of sort of making a work that you think is able to kind of, yeah, still explore these ideas of connection and coming together, but we still had these really hard parameters of not being able to leave uh, until, you know, quite close to, yeah, when I needed to finish the work. Mm -hmm. But the festival itself kept getting pushed out. So in the end it did work and and we were able to kind of come together in this COVID-safe way. But, yeah, it really was about this idea of uniting, even for a short moment, you know, three people who are from very disparate and distinct professions, life experiences, cultures, but for that moment kind of coming together in this moment of reciprocity and exchange and I guess that simple act of becoming joined or entwining at the end through the costume was a kind of gesture towards that idea of, yes, we might be separate and at that point I think with lockdown stuff we, we kind of were, but that idea that we can find these overlaps or these moments of you know, recognition of, of each other and, and coming together, even if it is fleeting, that, that felt important. So I guess that was sort of the trajectory of like how we move through the work and how we kind of become combined as this sort of creature at the end. Mm. And so much of your work centres on that moment of collectivity or finding that space for collective thought. And I was thinking about that and thinking, of course, we're in a political climate where things just feel like they get more and more divisive. How do you reconcile those two things? That's such a great question and something that I grapple with constantly because sometimes it feels like a completely uphill battle. And I guess the 
kind of wider political economy is going one way and becoming more conservative and more uh, xenophobic and all the things I guess that my work is trying to combat, it can feel very hopeless sometimes, I think. But if anything, I suppose, yeah, we've been through an incredibly tough couple of years and it's had repercussions on everybody, the art world, of course, but I think it's brought to the fore. People, I guess, on the margins of society or the mainstream, and I guess a lot of my work is concerned with the experience or the visibility of of people who, yeah, aren't necessarily the status quo or don't necessarily have a platform or forum to voice their experiences in the way maybe that artists do. So in the past, I've been working with you know, food delivery writers and gig economy workers. And then this project was working with Steve, you know, at the local tip. And I think those experiences of trying to find affinities and solidarities across different backgrounds and even class divisions and, and cultural heritage and experiences has been really, continues to be really meaningful for me. Mm. And it gives me, it gives me hope, I guess, that those dialogues and those conversations can be nurtured and and we can sort of start to yeah I guess go beyond our our little bubbles which I feel is what we most need and I, I still feel that art or this kind of art where it is about you know inviting people into a conversation people who don't necessarily always agree with you who may not look like you all of these things art's still such a powerful place for that and and I guess that's what I'm trying to open up or make space for when I do my projects and it still feels that way and it feels like you know we, we've had an election since and of course yeah the current government's not perfect but it, it gives me hope to see that you know there was such a political shift on a broader level here in Australia and while that's not necessarily happening elsewhere and there are some governments going really right-wing and populist and others going very left, uh, it just feels like the things that we can do or the kind of conversations that we can foster and have are so important to sort of do on a local level but also connecting to communities and conversations internationally as well and, and ways to sort of keep that idea that we are international citizens or or kind of citizens of this shared globe that feels ever more crucial to sort of have that that ongoing yeah connection to where we are and the people that we surround ourselves with but also knowing that yeah we're just a one small node in a very connected ecology so that's kind of what I'm I guess as things in some ways feel more and more chaotic and hopeless and thinking so much about the climate emergency it still feels so critical and also energising to think, oh, yeah, there are some amazing people and works and things happening and how can the work that I do connect even in a small way with those. Mm. And I think something I really like about your work is that you actually do that connecting in practice by inviting people in who aren't artists. So, like, you do have Steve who works at The Tip and in the Aphids work, Easy Rider, you know, you invited people who actually work in the gig economy and had them involved in the artwork. Have you always done that in your practice or was that something you came to fairly recently? Let me think back <laughs> through the years. Um, I think that I started doing performance works sort of solo or the material or the kind of 
yeah, the material would be me and my body, I guess. That was kind of how I began. And then I think because the work in those early days was really looking at those ideas of uh, trying to bring to the foreground, yeah, experiences of gender, culture, expression that maybe is not so seen in dominant culture. I think through that it, it sort of opened up this idea that, well, if I'm feeling these things or if I'm feeling like I, I kind of want to say something that isn't necessarily usually heard, there's so many others who, of course, have that experience, but they may be from a really different background to me. But yeah, it probably was around the time of making On Demand, which was 2019, so not not that long ago. And actually before that as well, when I started to look at the idea of labour and I guess the crossovers but also the differences between artistic labour, artistic production and more precarious work or casualised labour, mm-hmm. um, migrant labour as well. There are projects that I was sort of doing in, in 2017 exploring migrant labour in Dubai, for example, like the way that I guess big monuments or global capital hides a lot of exploitation and abuse, you know, of, yeah, migrant labourers and this sort of almost shadow economy of, yeah, how the globalised West or the more sort of ritzy kind of expat architecture or, or economies is only is only possible because of the exploitation of others. Mm-hmm. And so when I started to kind of think about that, then that sort of led to thinking about gig work and also technology and how Silicon Valley and, and large companies sell this idea of convenience and, you know, this idea of frictionless exchange. But at the basis of it, it's still about you know, human labour and extraction and exploitation. And those things I find so fascinating and so dark but so interesting and I feel in some ways that's gotten more uh, urgent because of the pandemic and how while many of us were lucky enough to shelter at home, people, racialized people in general, were out there delivering food, getting killed as well, you know. Their bodies were on the line and being risked mm-hmm. when, yeah, a lot of us had the choice to maybe not have to, to be out and exposed So I think, you know, all of those things, thinking about the way that, you know, society structured and and how life is enabled, it's sort of been more and more filtering into my work because Mm -hmm. it feels like the means of artistic production can be a place that either just replicates the sort of inequity Mm -hmm. that's out there uh, or maybe, you know, and it takes great work because we know the arts is not a lucrative industry. It's not like... Mm -hmm rooming with money unless um, you're Jeff Koons or something. So it takes a lot to to be able to create a space of greater equity and safety and care in the arts. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think the process and that the way that you build the working relationships and the working conditions in the projects is it's as important as the work itself. Mm-hmm. I think it's become as central to imagining making a work about labour or about social justice if, if it, it feels like if, you know, the actual conditions of work don't 
uh, live up to that, then there's no point trying to make a statement about it because, yeah, it sort of feels hollow otherwise. So, yeah, it's been, it's been interesting to kind of more and more come to this convergence of art and life and economics and life and art doesn't, yeah, make the, the making of the work, yeah, easy or simple, but I think it makes it way more fulfilling for me. Mm-hmm. To go back a bit, so was performance your first medium or was there a medium even before that? Yeah, I think I was trained, I, I'm a perpetual student, so I feel like I'll always be studying forever <laughs> and I'll never be an expert in anything, which I kind of love. But I did a degree, which doesn't exist now, it was called Creative Arts and it was a VCA, Melbourne Uni degree, and I majored in creative writing and film and photography. Mm-hmm. So I started, I guess, in analogue media and I actually used to write poetry and I thought I'd be like a spoken word poet and stuff. So (laughs) it's kind of fascinating how things evolve. But, yeah, writing and and I guess image making was where it began. Mm -hmm. And then when I kept studying and I sort of went more into digital media, that's when I started performing on camera and then it kind of then went into performing in public space. And now it's sort of it can be all of those things and I've, yeah, really interested in, in sculpture and spatial practice as well. So really depends on what the project requires and, like, what the language needs to be. Then the kind of mediums and materials come out of that, which I like because I, I guess that's the only way I can work because I'm, yeah, I'm not someone who is, like, an incredible, like, craftsperson or, you know, someone with an incredible painting practice I admire and kind of envy those artists, I think, because it's, yeah, there's a real craft to hone and you always know in some ways what the medium is. But I think I've embraced, you know, my way of practice, which is very still focused on materiality and probably the material, you know, the politics of how those materials come to be. But maybe, yeah, ideas of the body and how the body is used or held or moves, um, maybe that's the driving material, I think, for me. Was that something that you were interested in growing up? Like was arts in the family or in the environment? Art was not really ever, yeah, like a an option <laughs> in my family. Uh, I think I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't say that my family is not creative and I've got a sister who's a writer and there's different pockets of creativity in the family in terms of music and, and photography. But I come from quite a traditional, pretty like conservative migrant family from Singapore. And the expectation was always to be very financially successful and very, you know, make your family proud by being a doctor or a lawyer. That was really like only, yeah, that was what I should have done. <laughs> Uh, but I'm lucky that I'm the youngest of three daughters. So I think by the time I kind of was thinking about career paths, my parents are pretty tired. They're like, sure, just, you know, it's okay. You can you can do that. So there wasn't huge battles in the way that maybe there was with my older sister and my parents. So I'm kind of lucky in that way. Mm-hmm. But no, it wasn't. I think only in recent times have my parents come around to this idea that you could actually have a career as an artist Mm -hmm. because, yeah, it's 
very such a strange thing to choose to do because there's no set trajectory it's yeah you know especially if you're I guess a visual artist it's you're setting your own path you sort of have to but because I've always worked in the arts I've worked you know for big organizations and I've I've run organizations like aphids I think everything that I've done has always been parallel or connected to the arts in some way and then maybe it's now at this moment when I can really commit or focus on on this I guess you'd call it a solo practice but it's so collaborative as well it's like mm-hmm. I'm always making stuff with people but yeah I think my parents now are like okay we <laughs> accept that you're not going to be become an accountant or whatever like we kind of secretly hope but you can make a life of it and mm-hmm. so yeah it works. Do they watch the artworks and do they have anything to say when they see them? They really connected with a project that I did in 2015 called Yellow Peril and they were in that work and I think they were, they got a little thrill from being like a little bit famous. (laughs) Um, Just being seen, I guess. I think that was when they more connected to what I was doing because it, and maybe to be honest, I think, For me, that work was really pivotal because it did really unite, I guess, interests in ideas of identity and uh, migration and diaspora, but it sort of brought that into kind of a personal biography, you know, personal sort of family history. I think for me that was an important work because it kind of brought, yeah, the personal and political together. We did a previous interview together for Art Guide a bit over two years ago, and you said how you were your art was about exploring being someone who's neither Indigenous nor Anglo-Australian, and you said, I think my work as time has gone on is really trying to unpack this as someone raised in Australia on colonial myths. And I thought about that later, and that's a tension that so many people feel and I wonder how you navigate it both in art and life. Yeah, it's still it's still a kind of central driving concern for me. I think probably that project that I mentioned before, Yellow Peril, uh, that was maybe when I first had that sort of wake-up call, you know, when I was exploring Chinese-Australian histories and the violence that occurred on the, on the goldfields for people of Asian heritage and then I realised, oh, my God, this is, that's just scratching the surface of, you know, just such widespread Indigenous genocide that happened. It, it was sort of like the first time, really, I think, that I critically realised that because I was born in, in Australia and I was taught colonial myths like so many people of my generation so I think it's been like this real, I guess, a coming to terms or like a reckoning with being a migrant settler on this very contested land. And I think it's an ongoing tension and negotiation that I'm just kind of more and more mindful of and trying to grapple with with each project. So with the works that I'm looking to do now, they're also very site-based so I think a lot of my work is, yeah, really interested in in sort of ideas of the social and the relational and ideas of the marginal. But I'm also, you know, equally so interested in sites and their histories and their architectures and what they what they represent in terms of 
you know, humans and also more than human life more and more as well. So it's it's starting now each project with connecting with the traditional owners and the custodians of that particular site. I guess, yeah, having beginning a dialogue like or like actually making enough time to have a deeper connection. So it's not just about, you know, expecting an elder to come and speak and, and open a show, but it's something hopefully more meaningful and deeper where you can talk about the site and its history and also language and the seasons and the animals that coexist with us in those sites and sort of start to, yeah, have this hopefully much less superficial and and more tuned relationship. So I was speaking to an elder from Wadarung country because I'm doing a project out that way and they were talking about another elder who they had met the other week And they said that there's a difference between looking and observing and that I guess observation comes about through this kind of total attunement. So you're you're seeing the emu but you're also kind of understanding, you know, why it's feeding in that way or how it's moving its neck and how it drinks water and you can understand why those things are happening. It's not just this thing of like you're looking at the bird and seeing that it comes, but there's this whole attunement to how it comes to be that way. And, yeah, I mean I can only aspire to try, you know, to kind of practice that, but I think that idea of, yeah, really making it a practice and practice of observing and being attuned to and being respectful, then it's like, yeah, it's how can I give myself and the project much more time, like longer time frames so that I can really build in that deeper way of working. So it's not just about this fly and fly out, let's film it in two days, that real kind of like high intensity production schedule that usually film and performing arts a lot it requires. How can I still really work in this way that's about the sort of visually poetic, the cinematic but in terms of that way of working in the process, how can it be slower and more relational and not necessarily on my terms, you know, because I think often when we're working in the arts or, yeah, we're kind of working within capitalism, it's all about product and getting things to work for you and extracting the most value from the most little time. Yeah. And I really, like, I really don't want that. I think especially with the pandemic, really reassessing like how I want to work and what's important. I think it's like being really humble and kind of going, okay, well, yeah, if I want to engage more deeply, then it has to be this sort of meeting point where it's not expecting everyone to kind of bow to my timelines and my schedules and what I need. And it feels like what you're talking about is really just finding an ethical way to work and to relate to people that, like you say, isn't that fly-in, fly-out model. And that is something that I suppose institutions around the country are now starting to do. But then the criticism of that, of course, is that it can often happen in tokenistic ways. It's still a fly-in, fly-out model, but it doesn't appear explicitly so on the surface. Do Do you feel there's been a greater diversity in the last five, ten years? or I think in terms of the broader art sector and industry, it feels like we're still at a fairly surface level. Yes, let's get in 
artists of color and artists who yeah identifies with disability or first nations but it still feels like it's just at the kind of programming level uh it's more you know something that's obviously attractive and marketable and and makes institutions look like they're being progressive and and being sort of socially just or anti-racist but i think actually until institutions and the broader kind of power brokers actually seed space so the people who are in those positions of power it's still very white and patriarchal there might be a lot of talk of changing that and and changing that at the kind of exhibition and programming level but till it really is like a kind of deep dive and a look at yeah who holds those managerial directorial positions i don't think much will change and it it might it will still sort of smack a little of being disingenuous because it still feels like yeah sometimes you are as a artist of color for example you might be welcomed in in a certain way but it sometimes yeah can still feel like quite a tokenistic exchange it's un- under very discreet parameters and and then the institution might do something that completely counters you know what they said they were doing in another way mm-hmm. so i feel there's still so much room for improvement i think thankfully things are going in the right direction i was just looking at the nava new code of conduct and you know there's some amazing detail there about racial equity and meaningful first nations engagement so i feel like these when that's more enshrined in things like the code of conduct and you know more sort of written into organizations policy with an actual action plan not just policy then we'll get real systemic change but i think yeah we're still just tip of the iceberg it's still quite surface but it's good to even you know be talking and pushing these things i think and that was Eugenia Lim for this latest podcast episode supported by Nets Victoria You can listen back to previous episodes with Zoe Baston and David Cross, and you can also subscribe to the Art Guide podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and don't forget to rate the show as it helps people find us. Or otherwise, listen at Art Guide Online, where you can also keep up to date with art-related features and interviews from across the country.